All right, let's open our Bibles to Matthew 20. Matthew 20 this morning. That's where I direct your attention. This uh, book of the Bible, this gospel, has 28 chapters, and so we're sort of tipping towards the home stretch uh, in a long book. But um, the pace of the book will kind of pick up and change pace as it gets closer to the full Passion Week, the triumphal entry of Christ, and then the week of um, ministry that is narrowing the focus in terms of a brief time period that leads to Christ's death on the cross and then resurrection. So um, I'm excited for where we are, and I'm sort of charting to plod through the book of Matthew through the summer, keep us on pace, keep us going, and um, continue on. This Section Matthew 20 uh, begins where we left off in Matthew 19 with a parable. It's a word picture to convey a principle that we all need to focus on. And it's a principle that guides our mindset in life doing the mission that we are called to do. You remember in Matthew 19, Jesus modeled reaching the world for Christ. He's giving the gospel in a very strong and costly way, calling a rich young ruler to give full surrender to himself. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you need to deny yourself. Yeah, you're wealthy, but you would need to lay that down. Yes, you are young and full of vigor and health, but you can't rely on that. And yeah, you've got some power in the synagogue as a ruler, but all of those things are things you have to be willing to part with to follow Christ with full surrender. It's all to Jesus. That kind of gospel is anything but um, different than what you hear in mainstream evangelicalism, where it's more just come be part of the social club gospel. This is a personal devotion to a real Jesus who really loves you, who's calling you to himself, but he calls a full commitment. He calls for full commitment. And so Jesus is modeling how to do that, but he's also showing and revealing that most often when you give that gospel, people are going to reject it. It's a high bar and people move away. And so that then begins a, um, it begins to beg for how do you deal with life that's met with this kind of expectation? This kind of realism for this kind of mission where we give the gospel, we have fellowship, we have church with one another, but we're going to be met with quite a few rejection moments for um, our evangelistic mission. So how do we deal with that? Well, any good, uh, and I'm not a, a coach nor, nor really you know, an athlete from the past or anything like that, but I did watch a fair amount on TV. And uh, what I learned from that is that to win in sports, it begins with your mindset. You got to have a good mindset. You got to have a good coach that puts you in a good skull practice with a whiteboard and shows you how to think about what you're doing. You need some basics to win in um, competition. If you've ever been part of a team, a competitive team, you know that you got to have skill. You got to um, know the rules. You got to know the plays. You got to um, think in terms of those things. You, you have to be physically fit to win and compete. But you also know that at any certain one point in the game, something's going to break down. Your teamwork is going to break down. You become a ball hog. You come up with a hammy and suddenly, you know, all of this physical fitness and skill kind of is sidelined and you're put on the sideline. You're ineffective. 
You're breaking down. So at a certain point in a game, something is breaking down, and the team that has the strong mindset is usually the one that weathers that storm and wins the game. That's what Jesus is doing here with Matthew chapter 20. He's drawing his disciples in and saying, this is how you have to think about the mission that I've called you to be a part of. Jesus is going to leave and these 12 and the followers, the 12, the 12 and all the multitude of disciples that will join the church, that will be part of the church that we're part of today, have to have this mindset of expectations where we're giving a real strong gospel And God has to sovereignly work within who's coming in and why so that we don't lose heart. It's essential to make a connection with Christ's mission and realistic expectations. Your joy can rise and fall. If you look back in chapter 19 where Jesus is interacting with with Peter. And remember the disciples in verse 25, it says of chapter 19, when the disciples heard this about how hard it was to enter into the kingdom, they were astonished. They said, who can be saved? Jesus comes back with the answer with man, this is impossible with, with God, all things are possible. So it's all by grace that you come in. That's why a heart turns at the level where you give full surrender. And then Peter goes mercenary on Jesus and says, look, we've done this. We've given everything to you, so what do we get out of it? Specifically, verse 27, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? So what should I expect for this kind of hard-duty life? And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, meaning in heaven, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, meaning the 12 apostles, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, meaning those who have rejected Christ, especially the Israelites, ethnic Israel that has rejected Christ, the 12 apostles will sit in judgment over them. But then he broadens what heaven will look like, what it looks like to reap a life given to Christ. Everyone and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, you're willing to hold everything open-handedly for Christ, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Think in terms of the kingdom of God. That's how your mindset needs to be is life is a roller coaster, but then there's heaven. A hundredfold what the apostles are going to have is what I'm promising you. So how do you summarize a heavenly mindset with kind of a hard life down here on earth? Well, verse 30, but many who are first will be last and the last first. What that means in essence is that everybody who is a follower of Christ crosses the finish line in the same way at the same time. The first is last and the last is first. What does that practically mean? That's explained here in this parable in front of us. Heaven is all by grace. It's not something you earn. It's not something that you should have some sort of, you know, demand for. It's all by the Lord's providence and grace. We know how sinful we are, and we know that we've been delivered from our sin, and we all get to go to heaven. Whether you are first up or at the end of your life, Whenever God saves you in your lifetime, you get to have heaven. And that's what keeps us going down here on earth. You know, this, this mindset flies in the face of entitlement culture. You ever thought of that? I mean, the culture, the zeitgeist or the spirit of our age is, you know, I'm a victim. I've been oppressed. 
I deserve more. I'm demanding my rights. The woke culture in particular, why would you ever want me to have to work a job, especially 40 hours a week, or to show up to work? I mean, what are we talking about? Or the entitlement culture, the elitist culture that says, hey, I've done the work. I demand payment. I demand more. So both of these vantage points, the victims and the elitist, are not yet understanding the kingdom of God. You say, well, that's how the world thinks, but the world will creep into the church and people will become victims. They'll become elitist and they'll demand rights. What does the Bible say? Well, the Bible does promise certain things to all Christians. Every Christian's created in the image of God. Every Christian has been recreated by the being born again by the spirit. You've been enjoined into the body of Christ. Every Christian has a spiritual gift. Every Christian has access to the presence of Christ, fellowship with God. Every Christian has full forgiveness of sin, a cleansed conscience by the blood of Christ. You're equally adopted. You're adopted into a family of brothers, sisters, mothers, and children in the body of Christ. You are promised to grow by the Holy Spirit. You're promised to have access to the word of God. You can read it for yourself and the Spirit of God teaches you what's there. You have the ability to encourage each other, to have a mission, a ministry, hope, assurance of heaven, and the promised inheritance that awaits. That's a lot. That's just off the top of my head. That's what we get. But what do we also get as equals in the body of Christ? Well, this is what we don't get. Um, We we have no guarantee that we're going to be born into a healthy family. No guarantee that we're going to have Christian brothers and sisters physically, physical siblings that know Christ. No guarantee that our parents knew Christ. We're not equal in terms of where we were born into what geographical or financial situation we were born into. We have no guarantee of a stable home life. We can't be promised health. We're not promised wealth. We're not promised intelligence. I mean, hey, I'm a C student. I mean, that's just how it is. I and mean, people are all over the place in terms of smart and whatever, but we're, we're not promised uh, gifts and capacities and skill sets. They're all wide ranging. We're not promised to live a long time. We're not promised um, status, mutual respect, energy, vitality. We're not exempt from anything that life can throw at us. All those things are fair game. So we better have a good skull practice with Christ to be able to balance the scales of what we do have that's promised to us in kingdom living, not just pie in the sky, heaven, that's there, but it's kingdom now as we have the Holy Spirit and we have these things now where we're living kingdom life on earth, but we're living in a sin-cursed world where bad things are happening, where people are offended by Jesus, where Christ and talking about him becomes hate speech, where if you say anything at all, it's creating turbulence. We have to live in that world. How do we keep going on mission in a world like that? What we are promised is um, persecution. (laughs) We're promised to um, have pushback and suffering. We're promised a life that potentially will turn out like Job's life. Think of Romans 9.20. Who will you, O man, um, as the potter says to the clay, will the clay answer back to God. I mean, we, we are in this dilemma where we have to just kind of yield to what's happening around us. People in the church will turn on themselves at times. People who feel entitled or, invict, or victimized. James 2 says you can't show partiality. The rich man can't treat the poor man poorly. The, the poor man needs to see the rich man as an equal. You have to be one in the body of Christ or you're making distinctions with becoming judges with evil thoughts. How do we get our act together? 
Well, let's look at the word picture that Jesus uses to teach this lesson. He teaches us with the story, and I'm going to read it just straight out. I had made a decision before the sermon to read the whole thing all at once um, because I think all of it hangs together making one single point. Listen as I read. Verse 1 of Matthew 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them, he said, go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when the evening came, or when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only, um, only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to the last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. That's that parallel phrase bracketing this teaching. So whatever's in between verse 30 of chapter 19 and verse 16 of chapter 20 is teaching what this means. The first will be last And the last shall be first. And I just want to say that every parable, which is kind of a a physical story, an earthly story thrown alongside a spiritual truth, it's it's to create a concrete point about a spiritual reality. It's to bring it home with the story. And people will allegorize an allegory and they'll make all kinds of extrapolations from a parable because it's a story. And they'll say, well, that means this and this means that. They'll use... The authority of the word of God to say the word of God says that and people will bend and sort of mold a parable into anything they want it to mean. But if you study a parable, you really need to be looking for the overarching one thing that the whole thing is saying. So what is it? So what is it? Well, this is what I think it is. Out of reading this story and meditating on it, I think the principle is this. God is always fair because fairness is always defined by God. God is always fair because fairness is always defined by God, you remember the um, intro, uh, the um, title of my message. I didn't say it. It's different than what you see on the screen. It's answering this in quotes. Life's not fair. Life's not fair. Well, it's not fair if you evaluate life in terms of other people, other circumstances, other things people have or other things people don't have. But life becomes very fair and very meaningful. And endurable if you begin to look up to God and say, God, you define what fairness is because of who you are. 
How does this work out? Well, it really is answering a question, and that is, God, if he really is this king and this Lord over life and circumstances, if he really is sovereign, then how can he be fair? How do you live in view of a God like this who's sovereign, who's ruling, and live a life of contentment and happiness? We're talking about God. This is the master here is a picture of God. He's describing himself. Jesus is describing himself as God who operates like this. So how do we follow a God like this and not think he is unfair? Because that's the accusation. That person got what I got and they only worked an hour. Well, we're seeing the question here and we're answering it with the parable. How is God fair? And how is life defined for us and described for us in terms of his fairness? Well, number one, when life's not fair, God still is because God is master. When life is not fair, this is why God still is, number one, because he is a master. God is not a a democracy. He's not working in a democracy. He's not working out of a union vote. God is a theocrat operating over his theocracy. He is king. That's how you have to perceive God. That's how God describes himself. It can't be any other way. If God didn't operate as king, he wouldn't be God. God is not answering to anybody. He's not under anybody. He is the master. And you see this in verse one. He wears this title. For the kingdom of heaven is like, here it is, a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. He's making no um, apologies for this. He is king. He is God. Now, people are concerned with our country today. And there is a movement that I talked about um, several weeks ago, a couple months ago, called Christian Nationalism. And it it spawned out of a a book that I um, sort of came across called Christian Nationalism. It's a top bestseller in the Amazon sort of uh, community terms of Amazon books that, that have been ordered, this was a top bestseller. And it was um, uh, published by Canon Press, which is a um, kind of a, a thing to look out for. It's a publishing house that I'm concerned with. But anyway, Stephen Wolf, the secular author, wrote this. And he basically is saying that the country, to solve the liberalism and the woke culture and everything going down, the way to solve it is to reinsert Christian principles from the Bible with a Christian leader over it and take over America. It's kind of like make America great again for God for, you know, and it's, and you say, well, that sounds actually kind of compelling because I'd rather it be non-woke and more Christian. So what's wrong with that? Well, the problem with Christian nationalism, as I can understand it, and I'm still studying it and trying to understand what's going on, is people are trying to reconstruct the country through inserting Old Testament law or biblical principles in a way to kind of constitutionalize God here for now and make the best of it. Reminds me a little bit too much of what they tried to do to Jesus when he came as a sacrificial lamb instead of the lion that was coming back to rule with a rod of iron. He was coming with as a sacrificial lamb and people said, overthrow Caesar, overthrow Rome, be our king, be our Lord, Hosanna, you're wonderful. And when he said, no, I'm not going to do that, they said, well, give us Barabbas. 
And I think that's where this whole thing is headed. People want to pragmatically reconstruct the country and and crown Jesus as God when really what they're wanting is their idealism of a Christian nation. Jesus is king and he's king of his kingdom. And guess what? The kingdom has already come in our hearts in the church. The kingdom of God is righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit in our hearts. We are a kingdom of priests. We are also strangers and aliens passing through. Uh, This world is not my home, right? The kingdom of God is what I'm living for. Jesus said, um, you know, the kingdom is what he's living for, is what he told Pontius Pilate when he was getting ready to die. He is the king of a greater kingdom, and ultimately, he will be crowned king when the millennial kingdom begins. Where he's on the throne in David, the throne of David in Israel. So if America goes down, is Jesus failing? That's how you know if you agree with what I just said or not. No, he's not failing. The church is being built, and the church often is built through persecution and suffering. Revivals happen, and great things happen in nations, and it'd be good to pray for a revival and see that happen. But whether he chooses to do that will be his will in how he decides. Well, first of all, he describes himself as this master, and he's the master of the house in light of the kingdom of heaven. Verses two, verse two basically says he sets the standard. He sets the standard. Why is God a master? Why do we follow a God who is sovereign, who defines fairness, what's fair in life? It's because he sets the standards, verse two. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. He sets the standard. If you've ever um, known boss owners or business owners or, or people like that who aren't answering to anyone because they own the business, you understand that they're setting the guidelines and they're setting the rules. This boss or this owner is a, a picture of Christ who is setting the perfect standard. There's no indictment on the fact that he's giving day laborers a denarius. A denarius would be sufficient to pay for the worker, also for the family, and provide on a daily basis the needs. They were paid on the daily. Um, I'm familiar with this uh, scenario. When I was at seminary in Los Angeles, there were day laborers who would wait on the corner to be picked up for the day's work and the day's wage. It is a system of labor. It is a system of fair work for fair pay, but it's paid on the daily, which is similar to the way the Lord calls us to live in terms of daily provision. He provides for our food and clothing and shelter in a daily way as he provides for the birds of the air, Matthew 6 speaks of. So this is the day laborer scenario, and he's making the rules, and he's negotiating them and agreeing with them that a denarius a day is sufficient. He's setting the standards. Thirdly, he works autonomously. Now, don't be turned off by that word autonomous as some big philosophical highfalutin word. It means ultimate independence. There's no strings on this master. There's no one the master is answering to. He's not answering to a union board. He sets the standards. He does things in the way that he wants to do them. How do we see this work out? Verses three through seven. And going about or going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. So he recruited some in the morning and then by noon, he's recruiting others. And then he said to them, go, you go into the vineyard too and whatever is right, I will give you. 
He's just saying, um, go in, go in. I know that workers have already been working, but you guys go in as well, and I will give you what I think is right, verse 5. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour. This is in the afternoon. And the ninth hour, which is pushing towards evening, he did the same. So he's just fluidly working within the moment, finding people there, and he's recruiting them, and he's sending them into the vineyard with people who are already working, with the understanding that it's all for a denarius a day. And this is up to God and what he wants to do according to his will, his purpose, as he works autonomously. This is a picture of how God works. You say, but does this fly in the face of sovereignty? Is this different than the plan of God that's uh, the will of God, the overarching will of God? No. He's got it all planned out. He knows who he's going to choose. He knows who he's going to recruit, who he's going to bring into the kingdom. And at the same time, he works dynamically and fluidly down here on earth in time and space and is winning and wooing people to Christ, giving people the choice to accept or reject and drawing people um, so that they will accept him. And that's what the Bible is describing here, a dynamic ministry where the hound of heaven is drawing people to himself. So he's by title, He's a master. By practice, he is the one who is setting the conditions. He sets the standards for work. And then as a practice, he is working autonomously. Autonomously. It's saying that the nature of God is that he is completely free to do it the way he wants to do it. I love the emphasis here of providence. As he sees people, he's calling people into his kingdom. And he's doing it, verse 5, it says, he did the same. Do you see that phrase at the end of verse 5? He's doing it with sameness. Over and over again, in the unfolding providence of God, without hesitation, he's recruiting people into the kingdom. Verse 6 is where things take a turn for um, the interesting. Look at verse 6. And it says, in about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing. The 11th hour is a picture of this is the end of work. I mean, people are about ready to clock out. People are standing there and they have been waiting to be picked up for the job that day all day long. Their job has been to wait to be hired for a job all day long. And they're hoping beyond hope to be paid so they can provide food, they can bring back a meal, they can, they can provide for their family, and they're probably standing there somewhat discouraged. In verse 6, the master says, Why do you stand here idle all day? Now, this is less of a confrontation like they're being lazy and more of an open invitation to talk about them coming onto the job. Verse seven, they passed the test. They said to him, because no one has hired us. They weren't being lazy. They were being idle. They were hoping beyond hope to be recruited. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. Go in. Listen, this is a picture of saving grace. This is a picture of sovereign grace. I think a lot of us count people out and we say it's, you know, they're too far gone. They'll never turn to Christ. They'll never come to heaven. They'll never enter into the kingdom of God. But at the 11th hour, at the final hour, these laborers were invited in to do the work. Can create all kinds of resentment for people that go, man, you know, I gave my whole life to Christ. I had to leave everything in this life. I was, you know, in hardship with my occupation or with my family or with my career or with this or that. I had to sacrifice, sacrifice. And that person lived large. And then right at the end, they believed and entered into the kingdom. You know, what a, what a setup. What a deal. And um, that's not how we're supposed to think at all. It's all by grace that any of us are ever saved. 
I was able to conduct a memorial service where uh, a man that I met just three weeks ago came up to me and introduced himself. We had a great conversation, but he had mentioned to me they had stage four cancer and the Lord took him home. And the Lord took him home. It, it kind of hits home with this idea of the 11th hour. At the end of his life, he, he was yielded to the Lord and, and loving the Lord. And he was showing me his notes from the sermon on um, Jesus welcoming the children to himself, a, a picture of complete helplessness. And this is a man who was completely helpless before the Lord, yielding himself to the Lord. And the Lord took him home, took him home. You come home. You work in the kingdom work, which is a picture of entering into the family of God. They were willing to come, and it was a picture of grace. Now, all of this scenario begs a question. It's the question that I asked before. If God is sovereign over everything, then he could choose everybody to come to heaven. And if he doesn't choose everybody to come to heaven, how is that fair? If he's sovereign... If God is in charge of everything, why did he allow under his watch for sin to enter into the world to judge people all the way to hell? What, how is he fair? That's the problem of evil question that people always try to solve. And then practically speaking, in my life, why doesn't God give me converts? Why doesn't God give me Christian relationships? Why, why, do people, why are people turned off by the gospel in my life? How is that fair? That's what Jesus is curtailing or heading off at the pass so that it stays out of the church. So easy to get entitled. You know, I deserve this or elitist. I earn this. And we need to die to all of that and say, look, God is fair because he's God and God gets to define the rules for fairness. He just does. He's a master. He sets the standards. He works autonomously, does things the way he wants to do it. And I love what he does here with the second half of the text, beginning at verse 8. He basically puts himself to the test. He puts himself to the test. A series of tests here. Point two, God defines fairness according to himself. First of all, point one, God is master. Point two, God defines fairness according to himself. And he does this with a series of tests. Any good leader will test what they're saying with their own personal integrity. If they, their leadership and their own character doesn't pass the test, then it doesn't matter what they say. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He tests, first of all, his title. He's the master, right? Well, verse 8 says, And when evening came, the owner, which is kind of a synonym for master, he's the master owner of the vineyard, said to the foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. Hey, I'm going to just... Put it, out, put it out on the table. I'm the master. So foreman, call everybody back, and we're going to pay everybody all at the same time, out loud, in front of everybody. Everybody will know what everybody makes. That's what this master is doing. It's the ultimate, like, we're going to just call it out. I mean, now we're not whispering behind the scenes. What does he make? What, you know, why, whatever. This is what everybody makes. This is why. This is what's happening. And he's putting his title on the line his position on the line for why he does what he does. It's the ultimate test for leadership. There's a book, a popular book that was written by a Navy SEAL, Jocko, Jocko Willink. It's called Extreme Ownership. It's the idea of putting everything on your shoulders as a leader. That's what Jesus is doing. 
It's worth the risk to become an effective leader in a culture of skeptics, in a culture of entitlement, and a culture of privilege, a culture of, culture of demanding rights. He's putting himself out there. Call the laborers out and I'll show them what I've done. I'm not working under the table, not working co- co- covertly. And let's begin with the 11th hour worker. Let's begin with the most controversial worker. Let's start there. And that's where not only does he test his title, but verses 9 to 12, he tests his standards. Verses 9 to 12. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. And then, and when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house. They were mad. And listen to what they said and saying, these last worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us. What a phrase. You've made them equal to us. I'm looking down on those people. I'm elite. I worked all day in the scorching heat. I've, look at it. It says, I've borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. I've got the sunburn to prove that I deserve more. If you're giving that person this, then why aren't I getting double, triple, quadruple that? It's the temptation of the flesh. It's the temptation to grumble and complain. It's the temptation of Cain over Abel. It's the temptation of the tribe of Korah that got them swallowed into the earth. It's the temptation of the wandering children of Israel abroad that basically begin to grumble and complain at such a rate right before going into the promised land that God sent fiery serpents to curtail their sin and bite them and they would be killed if they were bitten and Moses had to pray and look for a solution. The solution was a picture of the cross where the bronze serpent was held up. Look upon the serpent and believe and you'll be spared of this judgment. Jesus is working from the top down and these laborers, these are pictures of people in the church, the laborers. These are already in the kingdom people. This is not the world. This is the world system that's crept into the church. They're complaining. They're grumbling. Why don't I get what I deserve? I'm demanding my rights. I've created the, you know, the, the group. I've written the policy. We're, we're coming to appeal. We're using our logic to defend why we think we deserve more. It's easy to get into that temptation where you negotiate for what you think you deserve It's a complaining attitude that will eat you up from the inside out using man-made logic. Well, Jesus answered this with his final point. It's the same three points that I began with. Jesus is God. He's fair because he is a master by his title. He's fair because he, by being God and master, executes by version of his standards. And then thirdly, he works autonomously. And so he tests these things. I'm a master. I'm the one who operates this way. And then secondly, he tests his standards by showing exactly what he did. And then finally, he tests his autonomy in terms of why he did it the way he did. Look at verse 13. But he replied to one of them, friend. I love that, by the way. Friend. The complainer's coming in, grumbling. Friend, he's building a bridge. He's reaching out. He's trying to win the heart of his follower. I'm doing you no wrong. By the way, it's very dangerous in any company situation to complain about what you receive and why and to defend yourself. 
He says, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? He's pointing to the fact that he had set the standard and he paid him exactly what he said he would. And then verse 14, he acts in terms of his autonomy here by giving directives. Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to the last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? He's talking through his autonomy. He's doing exactly what he said he was going to do. He's sending them home with that. And he's saying, I'm allowed to do it this way. I'm autonomous. This master is the picture of God. He does what he does. He acts according to his will in the way that he does it. When you begin to rest in God's autonomous, sovereign nature, where he's going to do things according to his will, guess what? You begin to experience grace in your life because God saved you in spite of you. God knew exactly who you were. You might be able to, in your mind, conjure up all kinds of reasons for why you deserve heaven and why you deserve to enter into the kingdom of God, why you deserve to be a vineyard worker and to get more than the other person. You might be able to conjure that up in your mind. But when you begin to go, nope, God is master. God set the standards for what it means to believe and be saved. I was given what God said he would give me. And he operates everything according to his perfect will and plan, even if I can't understand it. Then you begin to say, okay, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. I get heaven. Same heaven everybody else gets, same grace, same gospel, same Jesus, same adoption, same Holy Spirit, same access to the word of God, same church life, same future inheritance, same sanctification work that's in my life to make me like Jesus, just like everybody else, no matter where and when you were picked and chosen to join the vineyard, at what point in your life, it doesn't matter, no matter what befalls you, no matter what terminal thing happens to you or a loved one, what awful thing happens to your life, you still have this same gospel and this same agreement, the same covenant connection to God that's forever. You have that denarius that's given to you that same provision. And that's why it all crescendos in verse 16. So the last will be first and the first will be last. It all mixes together and you all cross the finish line at the same time to the same heaven and the same promise and the same inheritance. The choice you have to make is back in verse 15. Will you begrudge my generosity? He holds out the the grace of the gospel to you. He saved you. Don't begrudge it. Don't get bitter. Resign yourself to follow the Lord and be grateful and thankful and rest in his sovereign character. See that God is filled with integrity because he sets the conditions by his own character. God is fair and God is just because God is God And our mindset is solely based on grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together in the word. Thank you for this truth that sets our mind for the mission. I pray that we would not grow weary in well-doing, that we would not um, kind of putz out as we're 
running the race and hard things happen, but we would keep going. We would keep going all the way to the end, persevering. Thank you, God, for the body of Christ and the encouragement that we can have under the truth as you speak to our hearts. And Lord, whatever area that we need to yield to you, I pray that we would do that. Whatever complaining spirit that we have right now, I pray that we would confess that to you in our hearts, that we would know the forgiveness of sin. Whoever here has not yet joined the kingdom, who is standing at the 11th hour, I pray that you would draw them into the kingdom now, that they would yield their life to you and give their heart to you, that they would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved and say, you are the master, I am your laborer, I come by your grace alone. Pray that you would draw people today in that regard. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.